Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. ...of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Tuesday the 22nd of May. Wow. Still in my birthday. What date's your birthday? Second of June. Uh, it's very close. You have the same birthday as my mum. Oh my god. <gasps> you, you I like didn't know your mum was spirits. a Gemini cast. Yeah, you're both Gemini. So I know, I know. Ooh. Louise, if you're listening, I get you. <laughs> <laughs> How is everyone doing? Very well. Very tired. As, as is everyone mm. today. Yeah. yeah, it's a Tuesday morning. Yes. <laughs> what a time day to of the be alive. Yeah. <laughs> it is. I've come to the real, realization that every every Monday nights um, that I'm never going to get good sleep because it's, you know how early we wake up? I don't think mm. people realize just how early, because <laughs> you, you're not only waking up early, but traveling as well. Mm. So you've got to be out of the house. Well, I'm out of the house 5.30 mm. when, like on good nights or good days. Mm. Um, so... And then I never end up sleeping early as well, the Monday mm. night. Because you focus so much on sleeping early. Yeah. And then it reaches midnight and you're like, mm. oh, oopsie. <laughs> yes. But we love being here so much. Yes, it's true. We wouldn't get up at 5.30 for anybody else. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> um, I've got some news headlines, just a few quick ones. So the cashless welfare trials have come across some opposition in Queensland. The mayor of Bundaberg, Jack Dempsey, says his community has turned against the trials due to the high costs. According to the Australian Council of Social Services, the trials cost 10 grand a year per participant. What? I mean, imagine if they just gave that money to the people instead of using that for this ridiculous cashless welfare trial. It might be really prejudiced of me, but I was surprised that you opened with someone in Queensland was against the idea of the cashless welfare cost. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Always got to have an angle with yeah, the I love yeah, it. news story. Um, in Trump news, Trump has attacked the New York Times following the newspaper's reporting of a meeting between his son and representatives of two Gulf states in 2016. And additionally, special counsel Robert Mueller, who has been investigating the links between Trump and Russia during the US 2016 election, is apparently going to be set to complete his investigation by September this year. Mm. So that'll be interesting. Mm. Um, talks between officials and students continue in Nicaragua following the death of 49 people, mostly students in demonstrations against President Daniel Ortega last month. The Inter-American Commission of Human Rights has said that their investigation into the allegations of murder and disappearances continues and they are not yet ready to draw conclusions. Mm. Very distressing events going on there. Yeah, and I think um, another interesting news story that was brought to our attention yesterday by um, a colleague at lunch um, in Ireland, the Repeal the Eighth, uh, what is the, re- the Repeal the Eighth movement, um, 
a constitutional referendum on um, allowing abortion in the Republic of Ireland. So this is a pretty big deal. And um, I don't know about everybody else's Facebook feeds, but my Irish friends are getting pretty heated mm. about it. Um, yeah, so that uh, the, it's going to a vote on Friday. Wow, that's, mm. that's really positive. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, I guess, looking at, um, you know, it's such a Catholic country, um, but the gay marriage vote was really successful, so mm. fingers crossed. Yeah, and mm. we've seen um, reproductive rights kind of been, I guess, uh, going in, a, in the wrong direction in the US with Iowa, I think, about mm. three weeks ago. And some of the um, Eastern European countries, I mean, Poland's really clamping down and that mm. sort of thing. It's but good to see a positive. Yeah, yeah, and the South American movement, sort of in favour of reproductive rights, is yeah, it's an interesting time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Mm. So, 3CR Radiothon 2018, fight for your mic. The 3CR annual Radiothon fundraiser is almost here. From June the 4th to the 17th, we're asking you to help us stay on air by making a generous donation. Any amount you can afford makes a big difference, and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. To donate, call 039419-8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon 2018, fight for your mic. And we're back at Tuesday Breakfast. We're going to go to a song. I believe it's Africa Week or something along those lines. So what we're, we're told. Okay, so we're going, we've got a theme of great African tunes coming your way. We're going to start off with one of my favourite bands. They're called the Lijadu Sisters. They're identical twins from Nigeria, and this is a track uh, from them called Life's Gone Down Low. <laughs> Legendary sisters, so good, and those harmonies, amazing, <laughs> amazing. Was that a band that she had with her, or was? Yeah, I think I don't know. They just have a group, I guess. Um, but they were pretty big in the from the sixties, seventies, and eighties. Oh, um, so it's a group. It's well, it's just the, they must have like I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Okay, nice. Thank you so much. Do what was that? A sister's eye? No, no, that wasn't. Oh, yeah. You're doing your own little research. I've got my own African tunes as yes. well. Yes, 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 yes. And the um, only African here, mind you, does not. I'm so embarrassed. I, I don't know. I know African-American music. Um, so African, that's hyphenated, but no continent music. So I'm really... Well, no, I know Somali music, so that's African. We should play we should, Yeah. Okay, let, let's do that. Um, but right now, we're going to listen to an interview that I did with Monira Youssef. She is the Young Women's Program Worker at Australian Muslim Women's Centre for Human Rights. She's currently working on a project called Respectful Relationships, which is about the early forced marriages. Welcome to Tuesday Breaking Monira. Thanks for having me, Ayan. Can you tell us about the work that you do with Australian Muslim Women's Centre for Human Rights? Yeah, um, so I work as the Young Women's Programs Facilitator and as part of my role I work with young women across Victoria in both schools and community groups to understand um, their identity, their rights um, and the services that support them. Can you tell us about the program Respectful Relationships and just how it got started? 
Yeah, so the program um, Respect for Relationships is uh, a program that works with young women um, 25 and under um, who are Muslim identifying and works with them um, on understanding healthy relationships, understanding the law around marriage and forced marriage um, and also the services that support them. Um, and the program was piloted last year with a school in North Geelong um, and now it's currently running with nine different community groups um, across Victoria. In terms of Australian law, what's the legal age requirement? Um, so the young women have to be over the age of 18 in Australia to be married. Um, so that's the minimum age. Marriage to someone who's under 18 in Australia is illegal and there's very limited exceptions in the law for a person aged 16 or 17 to marry, but only if there's agreement by the parents, and in some cases a law court has to carefully examine the situation and make an order allowing this to happen. There's a difference between forced marriage and arranged marriages, and sometimes we conflate the two. Can you tell us the difference between the two? Yeah, absolutely. So um, uh, an arranged marriage is a cultural norm that's practiced all around the world um, for many Muslims as well as non-Muslims. And it's usually set up by family members. Um, So two people are set up by family members to meet, and if they agree to marry, they will marry. Um, In Australia, if both parties are over the age of 18 um, and they both agree, um, it is perfectly legal for an arranged marriage to happen. Um, Whereas a forced marriage is when a man or a woman is forced by their family to marry. So this is including um, using threats, emotional blackmail or even bribes. um, And forced marriage is illegal in Australia. And if an arranged marriage or even a forced marriage involves a girl or a boy under the age of 18, um, then it can't be, it can be considered child abuse um, and um, is and can get a severe penalty under criminal law in Australia. What is the new law around early and forced marriage? So in February 2013, the government passed legislation to specifically criminalise early and forced marriage. The forced marriage offence carries a maximum penalty of four years' imprisonment or seven years' imprisonment for an aggravated offence. So the crime of forced marriage can apply not just legally recognised marriages but also cultural and religious ceremonies as well as registered relationships. So it's important for us to have the community understand this law um, and have them respond accordingly to the law. How common is early and forced marriage around the world and in Australia? So early and forced marriage affects millions of girls worldwide. Marriage of this kind is not limited to any particular cultural group, so um, any particular cultural, religious, ethnicity or region, um, but it is more practised, more commonly practised in certain cultural groups than in others. Um, it is a common opinion that early enforced marriage is primarily happening among the Muslim community. Um, however, it is also commonly practised in many traditional patriarchal societies. Um, yeah, and both boys and girls are affected and can be affected, but the overwhelming majority of those impacted are girls. Um, in Australia, however, we don't have many statistics around um, around this issue. Um, so there have been many cases of early enforced marriage based on a number of recent high-profile family law cases and many cases based on anecdotal data from discussions among academic, government and community groups. Um, 
So what we do know in Australia right now is that there have been many cases of girls being taken overseas for marriage um, through pressure, deception or force, and girls have reported to teachers, counsellors, and in rare cases the police, that their family have plans to force them to marry in Australia or overseas. Um, there's also cases that spouses have been brought over from overseas through forced marriages, um, and there are cases of children under the age of 18 in Australia undergoing a cultural or religious marriage that takes place outside the provisions of the law. Um, it, the only stats that we really have um, is that in 2011 it was reported that more than 217-year-old girls were brought to Australia under the prospective spouse visa program between 2006 and 2011. So that's really the main um, statistic that we have um, that we can rely on. Everything else is anecdotal um, evidence. What does the law say about EFM? So in February 2013, as I mentioned before, legislation was passed to specifically outlaw early enforced marriage. Um, there are a lot of new amendments to this law, but some of the new legislation includes it being an offence to cause a person to enter into a forced marriage and being party to a forced marriage. So what this means is that the parents of a girl or a boy who is forced into a marriage can now be prosecuted and even jailed, um, as well as the imam, the minister, the priest or the marriage celebrant who performs the ceremony knowing it is a forced marriage can also be prosecuted. So forced marriage can happen... Um, at any point in a person's life, so even if they're, um, you know, over 18, um, in their 30s, it can happen at any point. So they themselves are not um, criminally responsible, but the people who are involved are. Um, and this includes not only marriages here in Australia, but when a girl or a boy is sent overseas and forced to get married. Um, yeah. So for a listener who may be in... Um, in, in the situation that you describe, um, how can they receive help? Um, so there's a few different options. The first one um, is the Australian Federal Police. If you do suspect that someone is in danger of um, being taken overseas or forced into a marriage in Australia, um, or the Australian Red Cross, um, who's a, also a really good um, uh, community organisation that can support um, young women and men who are being forced into marriage. Um, you can also contact our organisation, the Australian Muslim Women's Centre for Human Rights, um, for more information. So even if you just need referrals or information about whether it is a forced or early marriage, um, if you have questions to ask, you can contact us. If you are a young person who um, attends school um, or TAFE or university, you can speak to your counsellor or social worker who will be able to facilitate that process for you and um, be able to contact the relevant organisations. Um, and just understanding that um, so state police and federal police are different and understanding that um, federal police are the ones that deal with um, early enforced marriage, but we can go through the state police to facilitate that process. Hmm. Um, if someone that I know is experiencing an EFM or, or is in an EFM situation, where can they go to get help? Um, so the best place to go to get support is um, the Australian Federal Police. If you um, think that somebody's in danger of being taken overseas or being forced into a marriage in Australia, um, 
that's probably the quickest form of getting support. The other um, organisations or agencies are the Australian Red Cross, Anti-Slavery Australia, who have um, a website called My Blue Sky, um, as well as the Australian Muslim Women's Centre for Human Rights. And you can contact us anytime to just ask questions about whether or not um, what you are experiencing or what the other person is experiencing is an early enforced marriage. Um, we're happy to answer those questions. We're also happy to facilitate the contacts for you to the relevant organisations. Um, you can also, um, if you are a young person going to school or TAFE or university, you can speak to your social worker, your counsellor, wellbeing coordinator um, to help you facilitate that process um, and, con- and put you in contact with the right people. And that was Munira Youssef from the Australian Muslim Women's Centre for Human Rights. She was talking about the pilot project, Respectful Relationships, which looks at early forced marriages. Um, if you need to get in contact with Australian Muslim Women's Centre for Human Rights, the number is 94813000. That's 94813000. And if you need more information about early forced marriages and what Australia is currently doing, um, call the anti-slavery number, which is 44020-7501-8920. That's 44020-7501-8920. It's that time of year again. It's Radiothon. And out of the blue, we're running our annual fundraising trivia night. It's on Wednesday the 23rd of May at 6pm at Highlander Bar in the city. So jump on our Facebook page, Out of the Blue, for more information and tickets. Hope to see you there. Come along and have some fun. Jail blackmails in Australia nationally at a rate five times greater than apartheid South Africa jail blackmails in 1993. The suicide and self-harm rates are the highest in the world and the life expectancy gap is the biggest in the first world. You know, Australians don't like hearing the truth about how bad things are, but the more we resolve from it, the longer this is going to continue. Black fella, white fella, it doesn't matter what you colour. Mainstream media is not interested in this stuff. It doesn't find space to talk truthfully and deeply about issues that affect all Australians. The only place predominantly you will find that with any real depth is on community radio, and 3CR has been one of the great leaders in that. So if people are wondering where they should spend their hard-earned cash, I would suggest 3CR is a bloody good place to start. What your name is, we got to have lots of changes. We need more brothers. And we're back at Tuesday Brekkie, and we had the pleasure of being joined in the studio by Kara Keys, who is the campaign coordinator at the ACTU. And Kara is here to discuss uh, the community development program, the um, Remote Australia's work for the Dole Scheme. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So can you just tell us and our listeners what is this Work for the Doll Scheme for those of us who don't know? Uh, So the Community Development Program or the CDP, how we refer to it, um, is basically a program that runs only in remote Australia. Um, So of the 33,000 participants in the program, about 85% are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and it's targeted in that way. 
Um, the way that the program's designed is that people are forced into 25 hours worth of labour every week, so five days a week, um, 52 weeks a year. Uh, they are specifically excluded from the Fair Work Act, so they're not employees. They're specifically excluded from federal occupational health and safety legislation. They're specifically excluded from workers' compensation legislation at the federal level, the superannuation guarantee. So what we've basically got is a workforce of people that are predominantly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander that are being forced into 25 hours' worth of labour and they're not attracting any of the minimum employment standards that we would see for anywhere else people working across the country. Mm. So you've answered several of my questions in one. So not, not only are they extremely underpaid, but they also don't have access to these other uh, workers' rights. That That's they right. Be entitled to. That's right. So, I mean, because the safety net is what people get for their 25 hours' worth of labour, that turns out to be about maybe $11 an hour, and the minimum wage is $18.29, so it's significantly under the minimum wage. But... Realistically, they're not earning a wage at all. Mm. And, you know, um, people are entitled to the safety net. But the other standard that the trade union movement has fought for is that if people are giving their labour, then they should be entitled to at least a minimum set of employment rights. Um, and these workers are specifically excluded from having those. So no superannuation, no minimum wage, no sick leave, no annual leave. Um, it's really... Uh, quite astounding, I guess, in this day and age. And I've been in this, I've been in this gig for a while. Um, and it's probably the most offensive type of, this type of employment program that I've ever seen. Um, and I guess the real kicker with it is, um, what this federal government, what the Minister Scullion and the Turnbull government have done when they put this program in place in 2015. Um, is that they opened up this labour force to for-profit business. So, um, any other sort of system that has previously operated, it's been about community development, working with the community in, um, in community organisations. What we see with this program is that basically a for-profit business has access to a free pool of labour. So you could be a small business in a remote part or even, you know, in Alice Springs and basically you've got access to a workforce that you have no employment responsibility for. And if, you know... In the ideal situation, this is meant to lead into jobs. Is it actually going to do that if people have this, you know, large pool of labour that they can underpay and not provide certain workers' rights? Right, so that's exactly the thing about it. If you've got such a significant pool of free labour, of course it's going to put downward pressure on available jobs. Like, it's, you know, abhorrent as it is, if you could take one worker that you don't have to pay and one worker that you at least have to pay the minimum standards, what are you going to choose as a business person? And the really offensive thing is that the government, this is like condoned and designed by the government to allow businesses to access free labour over, you know, um, using the money that they spend in this program, which is really quite astronomical, to be, to be fair. They don't create jobs with that. They are creating a punitive program that opens up mm. a pool of free labour. Yeah, for organisations in this in those areas. Yeah, I saw a figure that was something like, for every dollar that goes into it, seventy cents is seventy spent. cents is spent on administration yeah. of the program. So, the whole number, um, the Australia Institute, a really reputable um, research organisation in our country, did a really fantastic report. And what they said is that overall, just the administration, so not taking into the safety net spend um, to support people in those areas, just 
the administration of the program is $360 million. Just the administration. Um, The other thing that they did with some modelling of that money is that $360 million could create 20,000 jobs, you know, where people were paid at at least the minimum wage and attracted all those employment conditions. So it it really kind of beggars belief that you have a government that would prefer to spend that kind of money on punishing people. Mm. Um, The program itself is overly punitive um, rather than actually investing in communities. It's like, well, well, we'd rather invest in punishment than job creation, but this is a government that's all about jobs and growth, Mm -hmm. apparently, but not for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Yeah. Yeah, so like in the rhetoric, but what is the actual outcome of what they're doing? Right, yeah. 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 So uh, obviously the exploitation of Aboriginal workers isn't new. Mm. I was wondering if there are any other examples that you can share with us, I guess, that relate to this um, situation and in terms of Indigenous activism and workers' rights. Um, we, we were sort of, you know, when, when this program came into place, um, we were also, it came into place on the 1st of July, in 2015, and then the following year we were celebrating 50 years since the Wave Hill walk-off. And it was really quite one of those those moments where you go, like, there was so much achieved through um, the Aboriginal rights movement, the trade union um, relationship with these big industrial disputes such as the Wave Hill walk-off, but how much have we actually achieved... Mm when we have a government that pretty much is like, this program is very, very eerily similar <laughs> to what workers of the Wavehill walk-off experienced. Um, and I think that is probably one of the most iconic disputes mm. in this country, industrial disputes. Um, the 1946 Pilbara strike was actually the longest strike in our country's history. Mm. Um, that went on for three years and, and oh. was a massive dispute with um, WA Stockman um, that was backed in by the trade union movement. There were all sorts of bans from the wharfies in terms mm. of um, exporting um, uh, the products that were that were coming through until the dispute was resolved. But, you know, the Wave Hill dispute, also massively iconic, mm. you know, led to, I guess, the... The um, you know that 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 classic image you see of Whitlam passing the the sand through mm-hmm. Vincent Lingiari's hand, which was that kind of pinnacle in terms of the land rights movement in this country, and it it has kind of been, I think, some of those culminating disputes have been the biggest sort of tectonic shifts, mm. um, where you've got an industrial dispute around workers that has then pushed into a bigger civil rights movement. You know, when the Wave Hill dispute was happening, you also had the overlay of the 67 referendum campaign happening alongside that. Mm. Um, you know, the, in the, with the Pilbara strike, you also then had, you know, the culmination of the East Coast of, you know, the Day of Mourning, um, you know, all of those kind of, all the big kind of civil rights campaigns, you know, there was sort of the powder keg was these large industrial disputes around... Um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander industrial rights. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess that's the fundamental thing, and I guess, that, um, you know, relating it back to the CDP, like the foundation of human dignity is being paid for your labour and essentially being able to withdraw that labour um, uh, uh, when, it, you know, when you're, not being, when you're not being treated properly as a worker. Um, and I guess that's kind of, you know, from a trade union activism perspective... Um, it's it's always been Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders workers driving those massive disputes mm. and then those big civil rights shifts across yeah. the country. It's such um 
such important histi- history to remember. And I'm just wondering, um, what can we learn from these struggles in terms of these job seeker regulations today? Um, I think, well, one of the key things we learn is that, you know, we call it a struggle because it rarely ends. Um, you know, it seems to be um, an ongoing thing, particularly with conservative government, governments in this country, that they will fundamentally attack the rights of working people. And we always find um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and people of colour and, you know, our, um, mm. communities that are, you know, linked culturally and linguistically diverse, they are always the workers that are at the pointy end of government attacks on workers. I mean, if you look at um, the gig economy, you know, that the government refuses to regulate, what you'll find is that those are workers who are being unbelievably exploited in this country. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so what can be done? Well, what can be done? Um, number one, if you're out there and you're listening and you haven't joined your union, join your union. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Good advice. laughs> um, you know, it is, look, it, it's one of the oldest adages, but what we have seen through these disputes, what we are doing with the CDP is that there is strength in numbers and it's really important to join your union and to make a collective effort to, you know, work against and work with the community and the trade union movement to get rid of, um, you know, these sort of broken rules. We can build together. We can say no to programs like the Community Development Program, collectively support CDP workers um, and make a real difference. Yeah. And it certainly seems to start also with um, just talking about the issue and that it's not being spoken enough in mainstream media. So Absolutely. Look, yeah. you know, we, I find, um, you know, we go and talk to lots of different um, people across the country about the CDP and not one person says, oh, yeah, I think that's a good idea. Mm. It's the tyranny of distance, particularly with this program. You know, it, it only applies in remote communities. You know, you've got compounding disadvantage and largely people um, who feel like they have no voice. Um, so that's why, you know, the ACTU and the rest of the trade union movement in Australia are working with these workers is actually to raise their voice, mm-hmm. have the conversation, educate people about what's going on, and then collectively we stand up and say no. Yeah. Mm. Cara, we are out of time. Thank you so much for coming in today and informing us about this issue. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. And I, while, uh, while George and Cara were talking, um, I remembered a song by Paul um, Kelly and Kev Kamadi, um, and it's a song that looks at the Wave Hill walk-off. It's actually a really good song, and sadly it's become a song that now you hear in commercials it's just become desensitized but but the but the original song is amazing so yeah let's have a listen and it's called from little things big things grow is that right Such a beautiful song. I love it. 
So if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast with myself, Ian, Lauren, George and Anya. And the song that you just heard was from Paul Kelly and Kev Kamodi from Little Things, Big Things Grow. And the song was um, just pretty much celebrating the history of the Wave Hill walk-off. you got to remember, Nainok's a special day for us, fellas. That's a reminder who we are. Every year for NAIDOC Week, 3CR Community Radio gives voice to our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars, Australia's only live prison broadcast. I am a black, black man. NAIDOC means a lot to me. It's about identity and also about past and present. NAIDOC means a lot to me for my family and my people. And the people forgetting about our rights. You can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars and either listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison broadcasts. Happy Nadoff! Hi, I'm Maurice. And I'm Mario. And we're Chronically, Chronically Chilled. A program that aims to provide a platform to those living with chronic and invisible illness as well as exploring topics that impact on our daily lives. Listen to Chronically Chilled the first Wednesday of every month at 6pm. Hey, we're back (laughs) at Tuesday (laughs) breakfast. Sorry, (laughs) everyone's pointing at me. I didn't know what to do. Um, I think we need to play the Nitty Nitty Ritty thing. Yeah, we do. Of course, of course. You caught me off guard. Some folks know about it. So we might have let that go on a little bit <laughs> longer than usual. <laughs> Worth it. Sometimes I do wish we had a camera in the studio when that song was done. Yeah, it would be pretty funny. Mm. Um, on a more serious note, sorry, mm. I think we're talking today about the recent school shooting in the US. Mm. Mm. The Santa Fe High School. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. And I guess in particular we were wanting to have a chat about the way that um, the media is portraying the role of women and the role of men in these tragic events and sort of including the Mar- the recent Margaret River shooting in this. Um, yeah, there was a pretty good, a pretty good tweet by Clementine Ford about it. Um, I might read it out. Um, there was a headline after this mass shooting that 
said spurned advances may have provoked Texas shooting. And that was in reference to um, a young woman who had been sexually harassed by the shooter for four months um, and publicly rejected him in class one day because she was so frustrated by his incessant advances. Um, and the next day he brought a gun to school and he shot her first. Uh, and so Clementine Ford tweeted in response to this headline, that no, spurned advances didn't provoke a mass shooting. Stop blaming women for white men's unchecked anger and entitlement and stop giving an advanced script of justification for next month's mass murder. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think this sums up the issue quite well. And it's it's really come to a head because this whole time we haven't really been discussing gender. And the thing is, most of these shootings uh, have a lot to do with gender that mm. hasn't been analysed and people are pointing the finger at um, mental health and saying this is a mental health issue. Mm. But stats on, school sh- on, sc- on shootings just generally in the US since the 80s find that it's, I mean, it's disputed, but between 14 and 20% of the shooters actually have mental health, no mental health issues. Mm. But in terms of the actual breakdown of, of who actually commits these crimes, predominantly they are men and they are white men. Mm. And I think we need to be having that conversation about gender mm. and what is, it, what is it about masculinity and this entitlement mm. and this inability, inability to deal with emotions that results in aggression and how masculinity is performed mm. through violence. Yeah, um, and those yeah. subtle ways that, that people don't seem to realise feed into these bigger issues. So this fantastic thing on the internet, this woman um, said that her nephew had come home from school and he was feeling really dejected because um, he had a crush on this girl and, you know, he was trying to touch her and trying to touch her and um, she said, you know, no, I'm not interested. And so the auntie said to him, well, what are you going to do? And he said, well, obviously, I'm just going to go back to school and try again tomorrow. And she said, no, you're going to leave her alone. Mm-hmm. She said, no, mm-hmm. listen to her. If she said, no, you leave her. Mm-hmm. Um, but that idea that he would just keep trying is yeah. so ingrained. In, and he was a kid. I think mm-hmm. he was like in his very early teens. Um that he would just keep trying until she mm. she, she gave it, and people probably told him to keep trying. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Because he didn't. Well, he didn't just wake up with that idea. He mm. learned that. Yeah, yeah. It is. I think that 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 point is so important that it is. Like, I think people that have had like financial issues or um, romantic issues, there's a real connection there between these acts mm. um, and and those sorts of problems, which I think is really disturbing. But something that we really need to be talking about, mm. and it's really like. I mean, yeah, I think there was um, the Texas governor, Dan Patrick, saying that this is about video games and mm. other sorts oh. of issues. And We've been like hearing this from Columbine days yeah, about video games and music and now women, but it's never never anybody else's fault. Yeah. It's never the individual's But problem. have you seen the... Um, so in the aftermath of this, and I don't even know who this guy is, but his name is floating around the internet. It's Jordan Peterson. I don't know. Oh, my God, he vaguely. is... But he so he he wrote an article following this Santa Fe shooting and and basically blamed um, what he sort of considered to be the recent um, spate of white male violence on the fact that um, the sexual marketplace has changed. That's the that's the phraseology that they're using, um, and they're advocating a return to. Um, and so this I shouldn't say is just I should say is not just Jordan Peterson there's a bit of a movement that's formed around this mm-hmm. article but they're talking about this idea of enforced monogamy um, and saying that basically because men are being denied intimacy and a wife and sexual contact mm-hmm. um, they're full of anger and frustration and that it has nowhere to go so it's being um, 
lived out in violence, in societal mm-hmm. violence. And so their solution is to give every man a wife, basically, <laughs> and to not deny men the right to a sex life. Sounds a lot like a handmaiden. Yeah, but yeah. this is, I mean, this is a real article. This wasn't satirical. This was, yeah. And there is a group of people who are actually saying that um, polygamy and feminism and, you know, women being queer and all of these mm. things are to blame for... Mm. Mm. It's really interesting because they're, they're sort of half right in a sense. They're not wrong that this is, an, you know, this is aggression as a result of maybe ch- changing sort of um, dynamics in terms of dating and sex. Mm. Like that's a fair point. They're wrong, obviously, about what you should do about it. Mm. We should mm. actually go back and look at where these ideas come from and address them and change them. Mm. 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 Rather than that self-reflective male, <clears throat> well, maybe I'm wrong here. It's um, yeah. No, we no. just need to change everything to right. fix what's going on with them, mm. yeah. yeah, as opposed to actually getting them to change. Mm. And Jordan uh, Jordan Peterson, he's like the um, the it boy for like you know those groups who are very much like PC culture is going crazy. Yeah. White men are being under attack. You know the whole. So he goes on panels and debates like you know you know those tags like. Jordan Peterson debates feminists. Jordan Peterson debates um, a black man who says white privilege ex- exists. So he's become this like hero for a lot of those kind mm. of dude boys, those incel men, you know. So um, there's been men like that around. He's just the just a current yeah, flavor of the month. The, mm. sh- the, 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 the shining, um, the shining man. But I'm just so tired of. I'm really tired of white men. I'm just exhausted with white men. And they're, and they're just mm. like the audacity, the audacity to be like, and and this is not just across um, dating, but also in terms of this is my country, this is mm. this is mine. Like, the, I think a lot of them struggle to deal with the way society is now, currently, mm. like mm. contemporary society. A lot of them don't know how to. Um, like get on with life because for them their whole identity and everything is attached to their whiteness Mm. so if that's being questioned and that's being put holes in what do they have and sort of remaking the identity or rethinking about the identity Mm -hmm. for them it's just like screw it i have somebody to blame Mm. hence like Mm. you know attacking women attacking minorities Mm. i remember this um this talk that I went to, and Akala was there, the mm-hmm. UK musician. Yeah. Um, the and he was talking about how people cannot accept the fact that the world is becoming more brown mm. and also queer. Yeah. Um, and that's, I think, I guess that's scary for these people who've always seen, you know, a reasonable person as being a white upper class man. Um, and now that that's no longer the case, mm. I mean, look at us here. Mm. <laughs> They're scared, mm. and they want to blame everyone except themselves. Mm. Um, and it like it ties in with that conversation you and I had, Ayan, a couple of weeks ago about incels, mm. about how that's also given a name now, and that's mm. you know these people are given platforms, and people keep inviting them to to radio and TV shows. But they're still controlling the narrative. Yeah, and you see it in you see it in this reporting. This reporting mm. has twisted the way that this story actually happened to mm. suit their narrative better. The Margaret River shooting was conducted by a good bloke apparently. Mm. You know, this you don't get to decide who is good or bad anymore. Like yeah. Yeah. Um 
And I agree with that. I also think it's important that this, these ideas are aired in public so that we can address them. Mm. Um, and I think that this is obviously like such a significant issue that we need. You know, I'm kind of glad. And obviously, it's it's tiring to have to deal with these sorts of ideas. Mm. But the fact that they are being aired means that we can go, okay, this is where this comes from, mm. and this is because mm. of these societal shifts mm. and this backlash. And let's address that and challenge that and change it. Mm. Yeah, especially if part of the issue that we're seeing is that men don't feel like um, they're allowed to speak about their feelings or whatever. Mm. Um, yeah, so even if their feelings weird, are like, but yeah, what it's about just, me? It's <laughs> a weird paradox, isn't yeah. it? Because, yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know. Should we go to a song? I think so. Yeah, mm. do you? Yes, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, are we still going with the African theme? Yeah. Or? Um, so this is a track by uh, Letta Mubulu called Normalism. So that was Letta Mubulu with a track called Normalizo, and she is a South African jazz singer. Some nice dancey tunes for the <laughs> bright and early in the morning. In case anyone for- forgot, you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with Ayan, George, Lauren and myself, Anya. Next up on our show today, we have Dr. Sarah Krasnestein. Sarah is a writer, lawyer and legal academic with a doctorate in criminal law. This year, her first book, The Trauma Cleaner, won top honours at the 2018 Victorian Premier's Literary Awards, taking the Victorian Prize for Literature and the Literary Award for Nonfiction. She is also one of the authors featured at a panel event as part of the Feminist Writers' Festival happening this weekend, and I'm so, so excited to chat to her. Thank you for joining us today, Sarah. <coughs> No. Hello? Hello. Can you hear me? Hi. Yeah. Hi. Sorry, Sarah. That was a technical error. Um, We here at Tuesday Breakfast are huge fans of the Trauma Cleaner, and the book has touched and inspired us in various different ways. Um, Just needed you to know that. That's very lovely. Thank you so much. (laughs) Um, For the benefit of our listeners who are yet to read the Trauma Cleaner, can you tell us a little bit about the book? Yeah, so it's um, about the life and work of a Melbourne woman named Sandra Pankhurst. Um, and she is a trauma cleaner, and that turns out to be the least interesting part of her life because she's lived so many um, different lives. So the book is kind of an exploration of those two things, and um, she's got her own memory loss, so it's also about, you know, how do you, you know, rebuild a life on, on the page when, you know, you're kind of running dry on the sources. Mm. And how did you meet Sandra Pankhurst, and when did you both decide that, yes, this is a story that needs to be told? Yeah, so I was wearing my legal hat at a fairly dry uh, conference on disabled offenders. Mm -hmm. And because the criminal justice system stakeholders that attend those things are, you know, potential clients for Sandra, you know, the police or the corrections department or community groups, she was there kind of to advertise her business to them. Um, and it was just such a striking visual image. You know, she's very gorgeous and perfectly made up and yet was 
behind this card table with a tiny TV playing these before and after scenes of a really profoundly disturbing trauma cleanup. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't thought about that business before, and I just was dying to know more about this woman. And so, you know, I asked her if she wouldn't mind being interviewed. I was thinking at the time for our profile, but we sat down, I think it was the next week or maybe two weeks later, and, you know, after that meeting, it was quite clear to me. I mean, it was already clear to her. Um, but I, I definitely could see that, you know, her life had this beautiful narrative arc. And, you know, mm. there was a story there, you know, waiting to be told. Mm. And you researched this topic um, and, and Sandra for quite a while, didn't you? Was it four years or something? Yeah, from beginning to end, yeah. Yeah. Um, and what has the reception to the trauma cleaner been like? Like it's been good. I think you know it. The feedback has been wonderful. Um, you know, I think it had been. It like when it came out last year, the response of you know Sandra's colleagues and friends uh, being so wowed by the story, all you know, the various parts of which they'd only heard um, kind of separately or you know they hadn't seen it as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, and I so I think that was quite buoying for her. Um, and it you know for me, I mean. You write in solitude for mm. years and you wonder, is this a thing? Um, so, you know, having people respond to the story um, in that way has been great. I try not to, uh, you know, read too much about it because, you, you know, I'm very grateful that it's won the awards and I'm really grateful for the feedback. I, you know, that's a wonderful thing to hear. But, you know, I think if you listen to it too much, You'd be surprised when you sat down to work on the next thing and it's just as hard mm. as it ever was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you're also a lawyer and a legal academic, spe- specifically in the area of criminal law, and you do a lot of work in sentencing law as well. Has your training in law and understanding of legal issues and therefore social issues influenced your writing? And if it has, how so? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, so I... Uh, yes, I, I think so. I mean, you know, the superficial answer is that the legal voice, or the voice you need when you're writing legally mm. or academically, will poison a creative voice because, you know, you'll always get told you're writing too clinically for creative work and you're writing too creatively for legal work. Mm. But I think it gives back more than it takes away because, I mean, for one thing, if you're doing nonfiction, it provides a really great framework for, you know, a objective or forensic process for collecting mm-hmm. um, your material and testing your evidence. But I think kind of um, more nebulously, it, it's a concern. My specific area of the law is sentencing. Mm-hmm. And so at the end of the day, it's really a concern for context that informs, you know, this necessary exercise of discernment or judgment, which we have to do as writers mm-hmm. um, with our materials. So, you know, what is, you know, what is it, what does it mean to be fair? What does it mean to kind of sit in judgment of another? Mm. Well, you know, you best hope that you're taking into account mm. all of the details and the long view and all of the context that goes towards character mm. and culpability and redemption, because, you know, there but for the grace of whatever you want to call it, you would go. Mm. Um, and so it really kind of knocks out any sense of altitude or sanctimoniousness or mm. um so yeah i feel like philosophically that's kind of a good that's been a good skill to have um yeah. Yeah. Um, I really like that point about um, not sitting in judgment of, of other people. And I think that really comes through 
in the book. Like nothing is ever. There's no opinion in there. It's just a story, and readers are left to, you know, sort of form their own own stories around that. Um, and let's talk about the Feminist Writers Festival. Can you tell us more about yeah. the panel you're participating in? Yes, I'm super excited for this, and I'm completely fangirling out. Um, so we'll see how professional I can appear on Saturday. So um, I'm doing, well, the title of the panel is it's Personal Feminism and Narrative Nonfiction, and we're on at 3 p.m. Mm-hmm. And it's me, Fatima, Misham, and Maria Tamarkin. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll just be discussing, you know, how writing narrative nonfiction can challenge stereotypes around women's nonfiction writing, and also, you know, the, the potential of the personal to illustrate wider points about socio-legal socio or political or cultural phenomenon, like maybe that gets it out, you know, if you hang it all on, on a particular story, maybe we can make points that would be lost if, you know, if it was made, if these points were made more abstractly. Mm. So it should be really good. Yeah, it sounds fantastic. Yeah. yeah, and the whole of Tuesday Breakfast would be there, I think. <laughs> Um, Well, that's all the time we have today, Sarah. Thank you so much again for joining us. Thank you for having me. That was Dr. Sarah Krasnerstein, author of the award-winning book The Trauma Cleaner. You can catch her at a panel event titled It's Personal, Feminism and Narrative Nonfiction, which is part of the Feminist Writers Festival. This event is happening this Saturday, 26 May 2018, 3 to 5 p.m. at the Queen Victoria Women's Centre, Victoria Room. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Guatemala. I'm Black Betty, and you can join me for Black Noise Radio each Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. Join me each week as I serve you up a deadly fine offering of all things black as we explore black Australia and everything fabulous it has on the offer. We'll check out and see what's making black news locally and from right around Australia. And we'll explore all things Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and the deadly solid culture and people with a look at community news, views, music, culture and the arts. Hope you can join me for Black Noise Radio featuring black news, views, current affairs, music, culture and the arts from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. That's me, Black Betty. I'll see you Thursdays at 2. Listening to Tuesday Brecky. I just want to mention quickly that um, my mum is actually having a book club tonight and they're looking at the trauma cleaner. Oh. And it's really interesting because I think for a lot of people in that group, um, perhaps they, they don't know any trans people or they haven't l- read much about trans people's experiences. And I think the book is really powerful for that. 
um, and maybe giving people an insight that they wouldn't get from reading an article online and giving mm. them an understanding that would help them empathize and just I think it just it works on so many levels. Yeah. Yeah, love that book. Oh my god, love that. Book. But but just but. if um there are a lot of heavy issues in the book, so tread carefully yes, is my only true. advice. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Thanks, Anya. Um, now we are going to head to an interview with Monica Ducks, who is, I'm sure needs no introduction in Australia, but is a writer and a feminist and um, a real champion. Um, and Monica is on the board of the Feminist Writers Festival, a bit of a theme in today's show. And she's joining us today to have a chat about um, this weekend's upcoming events. Morning, Monica. Thank you for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. I've got my gravelly morning voice on too. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> just, um, just had my coffee voice. Oh, good. At least you've had the coffee. <laughs> yeah, I have. I have had the coffee. It would be quite ugly if I hadn't had the coffee. So. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so I've just realised that your um, your workshop's actually sold out on Saturday, so I'm super glad I... Oh, has it? Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. No, uh, but um, you. So you're facilitating, and the workshop is titled "Finding and Sustaining a Feminist Voice." Um, so some I, of us. I am, and there's there's also Amy Gray's holding a similar workshop oh. um, with Amy Gray Magic rather than Monica Duck Magic in Geelong. So um, that may have sold out as well. But, Fantastic. Um, yeah, yeah. I love that you're doing um, Geelong and Melbourne as well. I think that's awesome for um for oh, women absolutely. over that side of Victoria. It's, that's what I mean. With the festival, we're really keen to um, to, to move out of Melbourne and yeah, and Sydney as well. It's mm. one of those things, isn't it? It's very easy to get stuck Absolutely. in the cul-de-sac of the big city. Yeah, and they say feminism can be exclusive sometimes. I don't. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, so let's talk about. Um, your feminist voice. Um, I don't want to ruin it for anybody who has tickets, but um, when you refer to this feminist voice that you're finding and sustaining, what is it and why Why do you think it's important? Uh, yeah, look, I mean, it's a big question and the workshop will be exploring all of that. I, I guess it's at its most base that, you know, a feminist voice um, is anything, any kind of writing that's informed with a feminist sensibility. And and I think, um, you know, that's very broad and very diverse. I mean, you were talking about Sarah Krasnick being trauma cleaner just before I came on. Mm. Um, my my favourite book at the moment yeah. as well. <laughs> um, I mean, in, in many ways that, that has that, 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 that tells a feminist story in a in a very different way to, you know, say something like Clem Ford. And, mm. and so many, so there's so many different ways that that, that sensibility can be expressed. And Finding that voice and finding your own voice to express that is takes a lot of skill. In terms of why it's important, I mean, feminism is important, and therefore mm. communicating feminism well is is really important. And it's interesting. I think in the last decade, I mean, I co-authored my first book on feminism ten years ago, and at the time when we were publishing that, it was a very different landscape in terms of how people could write about feminism and what you could write about and. And I guess the way that writers themselves were engaging with feminist issues. And, and so there's so many more opportunities today for people to publish about feminism and to talk about these issues and to form communities and, mm. and all of that in terms of writing. But um, there's still a lot of issues that come into play with that. And, and, and in some ways it's got easier, in some ways it's got harder. But, yeah, so anything that really has that feminist sensibility, I would say that's, that's the feminist voice, that's a feminist voice. Mm. 
Yeah, and I guess um, I guess you just the way that you answered that question made me think about it. I guess there could be as many feminist voices as there are ways to live your feminism. Um, Absolutely. And yeah. yeah, you're right. The Trauma Cleaner totally has a feminist feel to it, even though it's not necessarily a book about feminist theory. Um, mm. No, but it does. I mean, and one of the things that's so beautiful about the Trauma Cleaner is I think it's it's all about empathy, and it really does. The, the the genius of that book is that you read it and you actually, like you were saying before, you 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 kind of understand something you wouldn't mm. you wouldn't understand otherwise, and you may not understand as much by reading theory. So it's, yeah, it's about communication, and so a good feminist voice doesn't have to be explicitly, you know, this is about feminism, this is about issues to do with this. It's it it is about how you are communicating a sensibility, and you know that that once again that's a very broad net. Mm. Um, that actually, you know, you just lead into my next question beautifully. Um, this is not an advice column, obviously, but while I have you on the phone, um, <laughs> there's a couple of us in this room who, um, who've been told a number of times by men, um, that our ideas of feminism aren't accessible enough to them. Um, and that maybe if we, <laughs> if we discuss them, um, a bit more calmly, a bit less angrily, perhaps, um, we were a bit less gatekeepery, I believe is the phrase that was used once, then we might be seeing better results, um, in terms of men sort of taking up the mantle of feminism and, and behaving a bit more like feminists. Um, so let's, cast aside our initial knee-jerk responses. Of, um, yeah, I just get my bucket. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, I'll just get on my witch broom and, and go. Um, but I, I am interested in your thoughts on this. Now that we've just had this this chat about, you know, the feminist voice having all of these different forms and the way of, of um, communicating feminist ideas in different ways, how do you think we should be communicating feminism to men? Should we be thinking about it at all? Like, what are your thoughts? Uh, oh, look, you know, that's a good question because I think this is something particularly feminist writers and anyone trying to communicate feminist ideas come up against all the time. I mean, you can have it in your own world and in your own network and your own peer groups and then you can have it at Christmas when, you, you know, your, your drunk old uncle um, <laughs> talks about, you know, abominable things. But uh, so, I mean, first up I'd say that, I mean, feminism should be making people uncomfortable. It's it's not there to make everyone feel good and mm-hmm. it's not there to make um, people feel uh, okay with the way things are. That's the whole point of feminism. It's about social change. So the fact that, you know, men and and women and, and lots of different people get uncomfortable with feminist ideas is actually a sign, I think, that something's working. It, it should, it's, you know, feminism is about, in, in some ways, it's about power and how power is distributed and unevenly distributed. And so, you know, often those who have the most to lose will, will get most upset. Um, and there's also a lot of misunderstanding about what feminism is and different and how we can understand that as well. And, and so, you know, that's, that's just to be expected. And I think it's just part of the course of, of what it is to communicate as a feminist. I think in terms of how we bring people on board I suppose I mean I would say in some way some people are never going to join join the cause <laughs> some people are never going to get it mm. some people are always just going to be you know turds <laughs> about these things and that's okay that's just what it is um, and, and I think it's really important that when you write as a feminist and when you communicate as a feminist that you're not there to placate mm. you're there to communicate mm. and, and that's the main thing I mean it's very easy I, at my most furious times and I'm sure we all have this where you really I would just like to write bile 
<laughs> and, yes. and you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of terror. I mean, I opened the Age this morning when I was waiting for you to call, and the front page of my computer of the Age, the, first, the lead story is about you know a, a, a woman who was um, killed in a, in a family violence situation, like murders. And mm. you read these stories, and you know, in terms of the accusation that oh well anger and all of that of course we're angry and of course mm. we should be angry but then when it comes to actually writing i guess yeah the skill is in in how you communicate those ideas but yeah there will always be people who who try and push back and and who try and um i guess deny a, a feminist politics in lots of different ways and you, it's just part of what it is and and i think sometimes yeah it does mean that it's working they should be made to feel uncomfortable mm. it is uncomfortable it is uncomfortable reading about you know, the, the rate of violence, gendered violence in Australia at the moment. It is uncomfortable to read about, you know, the high rates of poverty among elderly elderly women compared to that of elderly men. Um, you know, there are so many different issues that just make us angry but also should be making people very uncomfortable because they're, they're pretty awful. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think we need to do any hand-holding at all for, um, yeah, our, our uncomfortable friends. <laughs> I think you've just summed up Tuesday breakfast in a beautiful three-minute... Yeah, that was amazing. Thank you. <laughs> um, and so we have a little bit of time left, and I just... Um, just in your role as board member of the Feminist Writers Festival, um, I've seen a bit of, you know, the usual the usual delightful people on the internet going on and on about why we need a Feminist Writers Festival in a city that has hundreds, possibly thousands of writers and readers events every year um, and yeah. a lot of those events have a feminist focus already. So why do we need this dedicated festival? Um, well we don't have and we haven't had a feminist writers festival um, like this before and so on that level, I mean I, I hate to use the term, but the word but you know there's a market for it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, we had our first festival such a huge success that took place two years ago or just nearly two years ago there was a huge amount of interest. Our, our sessions were packed. We had amazing volunteer support. Like, this whole festival has really come off the hard work of a lot of people just working very hard for something they believe in. I mean, the writers, there isn't a, a similar event, but one of the things I would say is I have spent years on panels and going to different writers' festivals across Australia and, you know, being an audience member. And often with the big festivals, they will try and program in um, a, a feminist event. And there will, you know, there has been an increasing effort to be to be mindful of feminist issues at, at writers' festivals, but to actually have a festival that goes over a whole weekend where it is all about feminist writing and all about feminist reading is something that doesn't actually happen. And and so in terms of why we need it, I think there isn't an event like it, but in terms of um, its success, I guess it's just there's so much, there's been so much enthusiasm for it. And I think it just shows that there really is a need for this kind of celebration of, of writing and reading. Mm, absolutely. I personally cannot wait. Um, yeah, it's going to be good. Yeah. Um, so your session is on Saturday, the 26th of May, so this Saturday um, at 1 p.m., and it is sold out, but um, I wonder if maybe there is a waiting list for tickets or something like that. Um, I know. People always pull out at the last one. Exactly. So I reckon... I'm sure there's someone now thinking, oh, I prefer to go to Bali on the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> Bali or feminism. Yeah, same sphere, same sphere. Uh, thank you so much yeah. for joining us this morning, Monica. It's been a pleasure, and I can't wait to see you on Saturday. Thanks, Laura. See you later. 
Illumination, three CRs, rooming house and homeless persons issues program, featuring information on health and housing services, as well as live local guests, artists and performers from our unsung community. Join us at 12pm on Thursday on 3CR 855am. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. You've just heard two interviews in a row with fantastic female writers um, from who will be appearing in the Feminist Writers Festival this weekend. And we just wanted to... Um, quickly give you the details in case you were as inspired as we are and you would like to join um, you can go to feministwritersfestival.com to buy tickets it's taking place this weekend, the launch is on Friday night in Melbourne and then it will be next weekend um, down in Geelong, so get along to it We're going to go to another track now um, I was going to play something else but I'm going to play another song by the Ligidoo Sisters because I think it's good mm. to keep it in the theme of awesome um, female artists in the spirit of Africa Week as well. Uh, this track is called Come On Home. And that was the Lidgidu Sisters with a track called Come On Home. Beautiful music. Yes, as, as always, thank you so much. For a beautiful Tuesday. For a beautiful... You sounded like an end. <laughs> thank you. I'm just pushing <laughs> out about our interviews this morning. I don't know. Oh, was was like oh my God. Both your interviews, you both were bonding. No, everyone. It's with, beautiful. Yeah, oh. I, I love the vibe. Love it, love it, love it. Love when you connect with another woman and mm. you're just like admiring each other, and it's just ah, mm. oh, it just feels so good. <laughs> so on that note, thank you to all of our guests this morning. Yes, um, everybody was fantastic. We had Monica Ducks and Dr. Sarah Krasenstein. Um, we had Cara Keys, and you did a pre-record. But we can mm. also thank Munira. Yeah, from the Australian Women's No. Australia? Yeah, the Australian Muslim Women's Center ah, for Human Rights. Yeah. Thank you. Mm. 